Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you, I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner, also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever." No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, sends greeting to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is God's word. Next, we're going to have kind of like a congregational prayer, which we've been doing for the past while now. Um, Garrett is going to lead us through the Lord's Prayer. So Garrett, why don't you come on up? Let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. God, you alone are holy, and we know that in heaven the hosts of angels and saints around your throne declare, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And to your Son is granted the highest name, a name above all others. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus, your kingdom is not like the kingdoms of man, which we are used to. When we argue and strive to be the greatest, you tell us that to be first, we must be last and a servant of all. We praise you for living this out during your life on earth as a servant of all and God, even to death, and that it was God's will to raise you from the dead and from earth to heaven now glorified. 
Give us this day our daily bread. As you gave the Israelites manna on their journey to the promised land, you give each everyone enough bread for each day, but not excess. May we also remember the good in this world is from your design and from your common grace, so that we do not become prideful or fearful to hoard what you have given. And forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. Jesus, we acknowledge before you that our sins are many and our debt great, but you are faithful to forgive us. We pray that your spirit in us would make us forgiving of others and that we would not be like the wicked servant who was forgiven much but forgave little. Instead, may our gratitude for your forgiveness overflow to those around us who wrong us both purposefully and accidentally. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Jesus, you alone are able and powerful to deliver us from temptation and from evil. We pray for you to do so here today. May we likewise learn from your example to resist the devil and his temptation, and may the Spirit in us convince us that there is nothing which can separate us from your love, not life, not death, not angels, not rulers, not things present, not things to come, not powers, not height, not depth, not anything else in all of creation. Truly nothing can separate us from you. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Okay. All right. So we, have a, we had a lengthy reading earlier. And uh, probably each week we're going to go through the entire book of Philemon. It's a simple book, and it's a strange one. So let's kind of dive in. The book of Philemon is not a book about slavery. But in order for us to really understand the points that are being made, there is a little bit of backstory we have to give, and we're, and we're going to get into that later. But it is important to note that the book of Philemon is not ultimately a book about slavery. At face value, just based off of the reading that we already went through, Philemon is a book about two dudes who are in conflict with each other, and it's kind of creating a blueprint for how we should resolve it as Christians. I think you could say that in its left hand, Philemon is a practical book. It says, when you are in this scenario, when you have this type of conflict, here are the steps you should take in fixing it. It teaches us how to love each other better as Christians, how to approach conflict with humility. But in its right hand, Philemon is a very theological book. Philemon is actually making a really grand statement about this thing that Jesus would talk about a lot, which is the kingdom of God this thing that was starting to open up and cover the world that we live in today. So you could say it's kind of equal parts what it means to be a human and also equal parts how to be a human. So we do have to get into some slavery stuff, and we'll we'll get into that in a little bit, but I wanted to whet your appetite first. Now, Andy and I are going to spend about four weeks in the book of Philemon. And each week, we're going to kind of take different themes and ideas within that book and explore them a little bit more deeply. So my goal for tonight was essentially, I want to do like a flyover view so that we have a deep 
at least a reasonable understanding of the history of what was happening, some of the maybe social ideas that could kind of give us the context we need to understand what's happening here, and then just a brief overview of uh, some of the themes that we're going to cover in the next few weeks. That's kind of my goal. I, I, it's going to be a lot of, uh, lot of bird's eye view is the hope. So the first question we have to ask is, what is this book? Well, the book of Philemon for those who may not be familiar with a lot of biblical terminology, is an epistle, which means it's a letter. It's a letter written by a pretty prominent church leader in the time of the New Testament whose name was Paul. And in, if all of the... Oh, we got that already. All right, don't worry. I'm going to get into all of this. Whoever made this, whoever, whatever Google clip art this is, it's just spot on. I love it. Um, <laughs> I like that Philemon's doing the Wu-Tang, too. That's pretty cool. Um, all right. So uh, the book of Philemon really stands out as distinct in a lot of Paul's letters. Because a lot of Paul's letters, you think if you're familiar, letters like Romans and Corinthians and Colossians, for the first part, they're longer. They're much longer books than this one is. This one's one chapter. A lot of these are at least a dozen chapters or so. Also, Paul tends to write to entire communities. He writes to a lot of people, and he's usually addressing things like uh, doctrinal issues, or he's correcting things in the church, or he's speaking on moral issues. This is what seems to be almost like a private letter that Paul wrote to one person to address a single issue that was happening, which by itself makes it stand out as kind of strange. This letter centers around... <laughs> Three figures who I think are uh, accurately represented in this uh, photo here. Um, Onesimus is a pale dude, by the way. I wasn't, wasn't sure of the historical accuracies there, but that's, I believe it, you know. So there are three dudes who are very significant to understand when we get into this book. We'll go from, I guess, middle, right, left. So we'll start with Paul. Paul's the author of the book. Paul is the one who is writing to the dude on the left, Philemon, the guy in this great uh, fall-colored uh, cloak, ready for October. Um, Philemon is a man who lived in Colossae, which is uh, somewhere in modern-day Turkey. Philemon appears to be a relatively close friend of Paul's, someone who Paul identifies as a Christian. For everything Paul says about Philemon in this book, it seems like they have a pretty reasonable friendship, and Paul has a lot of trust and admiration for Philemon being a pretty good dude. Um, he's also, as represented in this book, the leader of a home church, so he's kind of overseeing his own faith community at home. And we have reason to believe that Philemon uh, was a fairly wealthy guy, at least pretty affluent. So that brings us to our last guy here, who is Onesimus. Now, Onesimus was a younger man, younger than the two of them, and Onesimus used to be Philemon's slave. And slavery, again, gets into a different context than the slavery that we imagine as Americans, a part of our history, and we'll get to that. But we believe that at a certain point in time, Onesimus and Philemon got into a tiff. They got into a disagreement. And Philemon ran away from, or I'm sorry, and Onesimus ran away from Philemon and just escaped his household altogether. 
Now, at a certain point in time, and we don't really know how this happened, Onesimus and Paul met each other. And at a certain point, Onesimus decided he wanted to be a Christian. He committed to the Christian faith. And they started working together. And Paul found Onesimus to be a really helpful dude who really cared about the faith and was very valuable. However, the problem was that the three of them were now kind of stuck in this weird, unresolved conflict that also had a lot of cultural weight to it. You see, Onesimus was the most vulnerable of the three because not only was he the one who had offended and who had done the thing that was wrong, he was also the most vulnerable because he was the one in this position who was the weaker of the two. He was the slave. Philemon was the master. And so culturally, in this time in Rome, to be a runaway slave was sometimes a capital punishment. Like you could actually be killed if you returned to your master after running away. Other solutions for that often involved torture. Sometimes runaway slaves were branded with hot iron, sometimes even on their faces, so that they couldn't run away again without someone being easy, able to easily identify them as a slave. So there was an incredible tension in this awkward scenario. And so Paul is writing this book to Philemon, attempting to resolve the issue. And he's essentially saying, hey, I, I met your old pal Onesimus. I want you to know that he's a Christian now. In fact, he's not just a Christian. He's actually a good friend of mine. He means a lot to me, and I really care about him as a younger brother in the faith. So I'm aware that the two of you have a conflict and that he wronged you by running away. So I'm going to send him back to you. However, I'm going to urge you that as you receive him back, that when you receive him you don't receive him in the way that you would receive a runaway slave. I'm actually going to ask that you treat him like you would treat a brother. Or even, Paul even says, I want you to receive him as if you would receive me. Offer him that same level of hospitality. In fact, and this is one, of the, the one thing that Paul says, is if there's any compensation that needs to be paid, maybe he stole, you know, 500 bucks out of your wallet before he ran off. Obviously, that's not historically accurate. But whatever he paid, he took from you, allow me to compensate that. Like, let me, let me smooth over whatever rough edges are there so the two of you can be reconciled. Anyways, I'm confident that you guys can take care of this. This is what Paul is saying. Signed, your pal, Paul. So that's the letter of Onesimus in a quick overview. So now that leads us to a question which some of you may be having, and honestly, I wouldn't fault you for. Why is this in the Bible? It doesn't seem to be widely authoritative. It doesn't speak on heavy hitting issues in theology. It seems like one dude had a problem with another guy and Paul was fixing it. It's a reasonable letter to write, but why was it preserved so that 2,000 years later, it's been informing the church? Why are we reading about this now? And I think there's a couple ways to answer that. I have a couple points I'm going to try to use to, uh, to summarize my answer to that. The first is that this text shattered thousands of years of slave history. This text shattered 
thousands of years of slave history. There's a popular ancient Greek philosopher by the name of Aristotle. He had a quote, and the quote was, a slave is nothing but a living tool, and a tool is nothing but a lifeless slave. The history of slavery around this time, like I said, it was distinct from how we understand slavery. Like, obviously, the slavery that we have experienced uh, inheriting the history of, of, of just being Americans, that was a slavery that was heavily race-based, that was definitely kind of locking slaves into different forms of classes. This was a slavery where you could be born into slavery. You could also sell yourself into slavery. There were times where you could be captured as an enemy of Rome and made into a slave. So the circumstances around this slavery was very distinct from what we understand in America. The similarities are in how slaves were treated and even in how slavery reflected on the common view of humanity as a whole. If you were a slave, you weren't a Roman citizen. If you were a slave, you couldn't get married. You couldn't own anything. You were not seen as a full person. In fact, if you were a slave, you were legally seen as property. You were the property of the person who owned you. And in some circumstances, and I would hope to say the majority, but I'm not optimistic, slavery was meant to be kind of a, kind of a quid pro quo scenario. Like, I have a ton of debt. I'm going to sell myself to slavery to this wealthy individual who's going to cover my debt. I'm going to work for him for a few years, and then he's legally going to emancipate me. But the problem that we saw with slavery during this time, which is the problem that we've seen throughout history, whenever someone who is in a state of being subordinate is trusting on the goodwill of someone with power and authority, this system was often abused. And because slaves were not seen as full people, the idea that they should be treated like people was foreign. I thought of a, uh, in, oh, sorry, let me say, share a couple more things. Um, about 20% of the Roman population was slaves. 20%. It's really significant. The system of slavery was not inherently rotten to its core. Like I said, there could be some circumstances where a good master could treat a slave well, but the basis, like there was such a wide gap between the slaves and the masters that it was very easily to manipulate that setting and abuse someone as if they were less than human. I thought of, of an analogy. It's going to strike you as kind of silly, but hopefully that means it, 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 you're able to remember it a little easier. Does anyone have a dog? Yeah, there you go. Jared, you have a dog. Mosley, right? Okay, Mosley's a good dog. Yeah. I have. I've met your dogs many times. So, Jared, I want you to imagine that, uh, I don't know, maybe you and Danielle are just hanging out at home, and uh, Mosley bites you, runs for the door, which happens to be ajar, because maybe there was a, you know, a guest who forgot to close the door, like myself. He runs out, and you, just, you, you don't see him for a couple of weeks. 
And then you get a call from me a few weeks later, and I say, guys, here's the thing. I, uh, I found Mosley, but when I bring, and I'm sending him back to you, but when you receive Mosley again, Jared, I want you to receive him as a brother, which means no more like dry dog food. No, we're not doing that anymore. Taking him for walks on hot pavement? No, I expect you to buy him shoes. I expect for his bed to cost roughly as much as your bed, Jared. I want you to treat this dog as if he is no dog at all, but he is actually your brother. That's, that's the burden I'm placing on you. Now, that's completely ridiculous, but I also want to say that slavery was such a deeply ingrained idea into the people of Rome that what I just suggested was probably fairly similar. This idea of, well, if you're going to receive a slave back, then you punish him, and you punish him with violence, and if need be, maybe he's run away several times, then you kill him publicly so that future slaves know exactly what happens when they break the rules. And so the idea of receiving your slave like he's your brother is about as baffling as me as a pastor telling Jared, no, this is your brother now. He's not a dog. Refer to him by his first and last name, please. The interesting thing because Aristotle, you know, people love Aristotle because he was a smarty pants, which I'm sure he was, but his views on slavery were very much uh, not of the times. And his, his quote that I shared about a slave being nothing but a lifeless tool, that was all part of a deeper argument where he believed that slavery wasn't just permissible, it was actually deeply valuable in society, because in his mind, he's like, we have to think of the world realistically, and some people will just function better as slaves than they will as free citizens. They need slavery so they can meet their own potential, maybe because they're weak, maybe because they're poor, maybe because they're uneducated. So when we start to understand that, we start to realize that this belief in slavery that was so culturally universal, it wasn't just a view of social norms. It was a view of, hu of humans at their very core. That some humans were just worth better and some were just naturally inferior because maybe they were poor or they were uneducated or they were maimed and disabled, or maybe they just didn't have that moxie in them. But this was a belief that everyone had, that some people are just slaves, and they shouldn't be with the rest of us. So when we think about that, we think about how completely radical what Paul is writing here truly is which is that within this gospel that Jesus has, has called us to, within this like kingdom of God that, like I said, is like shining its light in a greater and greater way over the earth like the sun rising in the morning, like this is teaching, not just teaching humans how to be better humans, but the quote that I love, which is it's teaching humans to be actual humans, 
teaching the true humanity, which would also be the new humanity, which is that there are no human beings that are destined for slavery. No one is entitled to abuse or mistreatment because of any kind of status that they carry. In 25 verses, the Holy Spirit used Paul to challenge thousands of years of history about what had been said, not just about slavery, but about the human condition. The kingdom of God was bringing about a change. And so now I want to answer another question, which, is, uh, which I don't want to spend a ton of time in, but I feel is necessary, which is, can this book be used to defend slavery? Because I've heard this before, and I've seen this before, unfortunately. Paul's words to Philemon were not, you need to free him because slavery is terrible and every slave should be free. Paul doesn't say that. And some people throughout history, many of them, unfortunately, even in the country that we currently live in, have used this as a way to say, look, if Paul is going to write a whole letter to this dude and not say to free the slaves, then why on earth will we free the slaves? So the question is, can this book be used to defend slavery? The answer is sort of. The only reason I say sort of is because with a, a, bad teach, with a, a good teacher with bad theology can teach the Bible to say just about anything. And that's super unfortunate, but it's very true. A good teacher with bad theology can make the Bible say all kinds of ludicrous and ridiculous things. Doesn't mean it's authoritative. When we look at history, there were eras of time when, at, when European slave traders would never even think to baptize Africans because they didn't believe they had souls. Slavery throughout generations in, in parts of our country and throughout Europe as well would be justified because they heavily had this belief that black people and others were naturally less attuned to, to, to be a civilian. They didn't have the mental capacity to be a civilian. They needed to be a slave. To be a slave was actually how we loved them as Christians. The, the irony here, and I hope that you're catching this, is that not only is this not what Philemon is saying, it's actually what the pagans like Aristotle were saying, which was that if, if the slave is so like poor and ridiculously stunted, they need to be a slave. That's not what Paul was saying. That's actually what the people who were rejecting the gospel were saying. Paul was saying, look, Philemon, he can continue to be your slave, but ultimately, and first and foremost, he's your brother, and you should treat him as your brother. And all of a sudden, the hatefully charged biases against slaves start to fall off, because you would never brand your brother with hot iron because they wronged you. You would never murder your brother because they ran away from you. You would never beat your brother because they disrespected you. You would never abuse or manipulate or take advantage of your brother because you happen to have the status and opportunity to do so. History actually says some interesting things about this book. History says that as a result of this letter 
that Paul wrote, Philemon actually chose after Onesimus returns to him to set him free. And Onesimus returns to Paul and continued serving alongside Paul with the early church. And that some even believe that there was a man named Onesimus who was a bishop over the churches in Ephesus. And there are several who believe the reason this letter was so preserved through church history is because it was him. This man who was once a slave and completely condemned to the bottom of the social system of Rome could only through the kingdom of God receive dignity. I mean, consider that, right? Because ironically, one of the signature ways that slaves would be executed was crucifixion, which rings a lot of bells for us as Christians. So think of the fact that within this kingdom of God, the king of all creation would enter the world to die the death of a slave so that now a slave freed from shame and oppression by his loving earthly master and heavenly master would receive honor as he pours out his life to the glory of God and to the well-being of the church. From a slave who was once denied the very image of humanity to a brother and a leader worthy of honor. It's a beautiful glimpse of the kingdom of God. Here's my second point. Uh, through Philemon, Jesus is revealing the true heart of reconciliation. Jesus is revealing the true heart of reconciliation. It's interesting that, uh, could you put the, those three back up there again? There they are, yeah. <laughs> the interesting thing is that each individual in this scenario plays a very practical role of where you would be in a conflict, right? So Paul, I'm sorry, so Philemon was the person who was sinned against. Onesimus was the one who did the sinning. And Paul was the one who stood between the two of them and mediated their reconciliation. This is the practical application of the text. It's, it's really just a clear way of showing that if you sin against someone, and your temptation is to hide and distance yourself from them out of shame, out of fear, whatever, you should be compelled to return to that person and confess and, and take your sin and take, take what you did seriously. On the flip side, in Philemon's case, if you're the recipient of misdoing, if someone did something wrong to you, and someone is willing to confess, you don't use all of the power and authority you have to make them grovel and writhe in pain, but you receive them humbly. You receive them as an equal, even. It's, the, it's a classic portrayal of what it looks like to ask for forgiveness and what it looks like to receive forgiveness. But Paul plays an interesting role, too. 
Paul's not involved in this scenario. None of this has anything to do with Paul except for he happens to know both parties. So it's interesting that Paul, as a leader and as someone who cares deeply for both of these men, would step in and say, hey, Onesimus, I'm going to urge you. You can't run. You need to go back to Philemon. You need to apologize. You need to acknowledge what you did. But as you're doing that, I'm going to talk to your, to your old master and say, look, dude, you also need to receive him humbly and offer him forgiveness, even if you're not feeling it, because that's what it is to be a Christian. Paul plays this interesting role of standing in the gap between the two of them. And it, it really just kind of creates this question of like, what would it look like if as Christians, we wouldn't just confess when we need to confess or forgive when we need to forgive? Like, what, what does it look like to stand between two people you love and who trust you and say, look, I love you and I'm imploring you to receive each other as Christians should receive each other. Again, Paul even said, look, if he stole 500 bucks, I'll pay it. If there's a financial thing that needs to be bridged, I'll, I'll, I'll cover it. He was willing to take something that would affect him personally just so that he could help facilitate this reconciliation. There's something really valuable there. As, we, uh, as I kind of move to my closing points here, I want to read a story from Luke. I'm sure many of us are familiar with it. Luke chapter 10. It goes like this. The man wanted to justify his actions, and so he asked Jesus a question. He said, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied with a story. He said, a Jewish man was traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he was attacked by bandits. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him up, and they left him half dead beside the road. By chance, a priest came along, but when he saw the man lying there, he crossed to the other side of the road and passed him by. A temple assistant walked over and looked at him lying there, but he also passed by on the other side. Then a despised Samaritan came along, and when he saw the man, he felt compassion for him. Going over to him, the Samaritan soothed his wounds with olive oil and wine and bandaged them. Then he put the man on his own donkey and took him to an inn where, the, where he took care of him. The next day, he handed the innkeeper two silver coins, telling him, take care of this man. If his bill runs higher than this, I'll pay you the next time I'm here. Jesus turned to them and said, now which of these three would you say was a neighbor to the man who was attacked by bandits? And the man replied, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, yes, now go and do the same. It's interesting. There's some fascinating parallels between a story like this and the story of Philemon. Jesus and Paul are both connecting that where there are flaws 
and where there has been sin infiltrating even our cultural understandings of things, this is where the kingdom of God is shining light. And this is where God is bringing us into something new and something greater. For Jesus' story, he was like, look, I know you guys don't like Samaritans. But what would you do if a Samaritan was the one that saved your life? What would you do if a man was capable of overcoming cultural stigma and loving someone who needed it? Now go and do likewise. Paul is saying the same thing in this text, essentially. You guys are conditioned to treat slaves like they're garbage, like they're literal property. You would prefer this man be beaten and disrespected when he returns to his master rather than loved and cared for. But instead, I'm going to ask you to treat him like you would treat yourself and treat him like you would treat a friend. Paul and Jesus are both painting a picture of the kingdom of God, something that a friend of mine, another pastor, calls the upside-down kingdom. It's a place where it's better to give than to receive, where it's better to fast than to feast, and where you get your own life by giving it away. Jesus is the king of our upside-down kingdom. So, I didn't aim for this to be super practical or give a lot of like notes, but hey, if we're going to ask ourselves question, let's ask, where, where should we be seeking forgiveness where we're fleeing from it? Where are we not forgiving when we should be? Where have we even halfway forgiven, but we've neglected to look at the offending party as if they truly are a brother and not just someone still beneath us? How can we even help others in reconciliation when there's trust and love there? And where is our love for these outsiders who are often the most neglected? I think we should think on these things. And then we should go and do the same as Jesus said. Pray with me. Father in heaven, uh, God, I'm grateful for, uh, for your word to us. I'm grateful for this story that just happens to continue to be significant for us 2,000 years later. God, I, I hope that we can marvel at this idea that like Christian ideas were, were completely earth-shattering to what existed at the time. It's a blessing that we have been affected in such a way to where we feel compelled to love and to bless those who are culturally just hated and despised. Show us the ways in which we need to be doing that. Like help us and guide us in that endeavor. And may we just be so overjoyed and grateful for this kingdom that is unfolding around us, this new way to be a human that is so great. Just, uh, yeah, guide us in this as we remember that ultimately this is all truly your love for us, that you're not just coming to change things, you're coming to heal things. Even that our very hearts, even in our minds, you are healing us, God. So please continue to heal us as we humble ourselves before you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.